Welcome to the Business Chef Podcast, where we learn from the best about the business side of the food service industry. Do you make food? Then let us help you make money doing Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us, info at businesschef.org. Hey there, guys and gals. Chef Sean Boucher here, your host of the Business Chef Podcast. You know, today we're talking to a guy that I am interested in talking to, Mr. Dwayne Keller, who is one of the more notable faces, especially in the Washington, D.C. area. He is a chef. He is a hardworking guy, an innovator, and somebody who can tell us a little bit about the private club world. I think there's some misconceptions out there about private clubs and chefs that work in them. And I think Chef Keller is going to probably clear up some of those rumors for us. Chef, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get started in this business? And uh, what brought you up to this point? Oh, wow. How much time do we have? Um, you know, I was fortunate to grow up in a, uh, a great town, uh, a town built on hospitality. Um, it was built during the Depression uh, by a uh, proprietor in, uh, in chocolate, uh, Milton Hershey. So uh, I grew up in Hershey, PA. My dad played for the Hershey Bears. And uh, I had uh, just the fortunate uh, uh, opportunity to work at Hotel Hershey and another little restaurant that's still around and has been one of the best in Pennsylvania for 40 years now. It's called Alfred's Victorian. And uh, it's an interesting story how I ended up in the... Uh, kitchen. Uh, my father and mother were both very good cooks. My father is German and Russian, and my mother was Polish and Russian. And they both were excellent cooks, did a lot of entertaining at the house. And uh, with my dad being in uh, professional hockey, he was uh, always entertaining. And uh, it was a real fun environment at home. Um, so I started... Uh, I started in the kitchen because I had to pay a uh, a fine for driving. Uh, my mother had multiple sclerosis, and uh, I used to drive myself to school or drive myself to hockey practice. Uh, and uh, one time I didn't stop completely at a stop sign, and uh, the police officer came up and asked, uh, can I see your driver's license and registration? And I looked around the car, and I said, uh, excuse me, sir, are you talking to me? <laughs> and uh, I got a ticket. So my dad said, uh, well, you need to pay your ticket. So he dropped me off at an orchard. I picked fruit for a half a day and uh, went up uh, after the lunch whistle and asked how much had I made that day, and it was $3. And uh, I walked the whole way home. I think it was about 10 miles. And my dad said, well, you can be a caddy. And uh, I really didn't want to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And... Uh, so I did that a little bit, but I didn't really care for it. And I was fortunate enough to have neighbors that would take me to and from work that owned Alfred's Victorian, the Pellegrinis. And uh, so I started at the age of 13 uh, in the pot station. I washed in pots and uh, 
I did well, and the owner would come around on a busy night and give us a $5 bill or even a $10 bill on a New Year's Eve or something. I think I worked there probably four years. So I took to it immediately. I love the people. I love the action. I love the, you know, just the environment. And uh, I've been in kitchens ever since. Um, I've always uh, played hockey. Our whole family is built on hockey. And uh, I think hockey has given me a good foundation of uh, building teams and uh, being a leader. And uh, I always just call myself a player coach. You know, you've had you've had quite the past you've had quite the story and and uh and upbringing and you've been very fortunate as a lot of us have to really have good mentors and leaders and you bring up an interesting point about you know playing hockey and learning to lead and learning to build a team talk about some of the leaders that you've worked with and that have allowed you to play on their teams and kind of the lessons that you've learned from them that maybe have helped you build some of your own teams? Oh, boy. I mean, I've worked with some of the finest hotel and restaurant professionals in North America. I um, I went from Pennsylvania back to Canada to play hockey. I ended up working in a four-star hotel, and I didn't know it. I mean, I just uh, made the team. I got in there, and uh, uh, the chef was uh, Gerald Erler. He was chef of the year for three years in a row. And I knew, honestly, I I mean, I was scared to death every day I went to work. Um, But this guy was chef of the year, and he was as tough as you would ever find. You know, he's a German chef. But um, he really, um, not only was he tough, he just was so fair with everybody that you you really could never have a, problem with him even as tough as he was um we we all sat down breakfast lunch and dinner and ate together uh he had these prep tables i i haven't seen them since um that had like pews they you know the little seats would pop out so you would pull out your seat and sit down on these long prep tables and eat breakfast lunch and dinner together as a team every day and i i think that was in 1984 I think at that point, you know, that really hit home with me about teams. Um, I guess I did a good job because they put together a team for the World Expo in Vancouver, and they sent me on my way. It was 1985, and I went to go work with even more crazy Europeans. In Vancouver, I worked out of Emerald Park, which was this big old mansion sitting up in North Vancouver on 3rd. And uh, Mausaman was there. Uh, they said Queen Elizabeth was there. I didn't see anything but the kitchen. Um, I, you know, jumped as high as they told me to. I did. We worked from 8 o'clock in the morning till midnight every day. We got an hour break just to get out between lunch and dinner and get some fresh air. And we worked seven days a week just incredible i mean the the food that we did there was incredible so um after vancouver i uh came back home i told my dad i'd be coming back to hershey he said how are you going to get here i used to race bicycles so i said i was going to ride my bike 
And uh, I rode from uh, Vancouver to Seattle, flew to Philly, rode from Philly to Hershey, knocked on his door, and he said, well, that didn't take you too long. And uh, asked me if I wanted to open a restaurant, and I said, no, not in Pennsylvania. So I went down to Florida for 10 years. I was in Florida, and uh, I started in uh, Hawks K down in uh, mile marker 61 um, in uh, um, at Hawks K Resort. The professionals that I've worked with, um, I'm just lucky. I just feel humbled and lucky that I got to work with some of the finest. Uh, like I worked for uh, Jack Campbell, who was one of the top restaurateurs in the country back. This is in the back in the mid to late '80s, and uh, he ran the Mai Tai in Fort Lauderdale, um, and that was doing about 18 million a year at the time. That was number three in the country. And we went and opened six different concepts in uh, Sarasota, Florida. And he was a big mentor of mine. Um, he was just a fun guy, very knowledgeable, a lot of integrity, um, always did what he said he was going to do. But he really had a lot of style. You know, this guy was really, people really, really just were drawn to him. He had He was very admired. He really helped me bridge that gap between the kitchen and the front of the house. So that was in uh, the late 80s. And uh, since then, I'm always a, I'm a chef of both sides. I've, I haven't, you know, I haven't separated the kitchen and the front of the house since the late 80s. I think it's important to uh, the front of the house to have confidence and, and all the knowledge that they need to be, you know, confident out there with the guests or the members and, that's what we do as the kitchen. We set the we set the stage and we give them all the information. We let them try all the food and we inspire them every day to go out and uh, you know. I, I say it kind of like uh, the confidence oozes out of the kitchen into the front of the house, and that's really a good thing because that helps the front of the house be confident in what they're doing. You know, it it really is amazing, the background and the experience that you've had and all the lessons that you've learned over a very illustrious career. So let me ask you this. Given all your experiences in, in restaurants and multi-units and hotels and everything that you've done, why go into country clubs? What What is it about country clubs that... Uh, that has drawn you in because I, I think there's a perception out there about what country clubs are that maybe is not quite as accurate as what it really is. You know, I, I never really considered myself a country club chef. Um, I like it because I, I think I've had a lot of regulars in restaurants for years. So I like seeing the same people, and I like to establish relationships, and uh, it takes some time. And if you aren't really good at what you do, you're never going to have that chance in the public sector. But myself, I, I still don't consider myself a country club chef because I always heard country club jobs were easy. And honestly, this is one of the toughest jobs I've ever had. We have three different outlets. We do banquets to 1,500. Um, it's, a, it's a grind. 
And uh, but it's you know it's rewarding because of all the members um, and the staff, but the members mostly because um, they are really appreciative. They we have a lot of raving fans there, and uh, some of the members are the most distinguished people in this country. Uh, we got some really big time personalities there. Senator Warner, this guy, he's 90 now. He remember he remembered me from the Ashby Inn in the 90s, early 90s. He used to come there and eat a lot. And then uh, I remember when I went to Blue Point Grill in, in Old Town Alexandria, he walked in one day and he addressed me as Chef Keller. Remembered me from, and that was in 1999. Now he... Uh, He's a member at Bellhaven Country Club, and, and when he heard I was coming there, he told the general manager that was one of his favorite restaurants. All the restaurants that I had in Washington, D.C. were his favorite restaurants. I think good chefs realize that if you work hard and you do good work, that being in a country club, you're going to get a lot of bell ringers, and bell ringers are members that sing your praise. Now, on the other side, like for me, if it wasn't for LinkedIn or social media, I'd have no contact to the outside world. And I'm used to being in the limelight. I mean, I've won the top 108 times, the top 55 times, the James Beard, the the Dorona, all these different awards. And being in a private club is very different because there's really no promoting. You know, we don't uh, promote to the outside. You know, there. if I had a nickel for every time somebody asked me if they could do an event there, um, we would be rolling in, you know, we would be in good shape. But we, we're a private club, so you, I can't cook for the my clientele that's been following me around in Washington, D.C. for 20 years. To answer your question, um, I think the rumor on the street is that a country club job is an easy job. It may it may add a little more um, quality of life um, to a chef's life because, you know, us chefs, we work a lot and we work long hours and stuff. But this uh, club, I flipped. Um, Bob Gazella was the GM that was there. He said... Jeff, you just flipped the biggest club in Washington, D.C., and he was right. It was uh, it was a monumental, monumental task. You know, that's a very interesting term that you use, flipping the club. So talk a little bit about that. What, what do you mean by flipping the club, and how is it that you flip the club, or how did you flip that club? Well, first of all, it's all about the quality of the food. There's, um, you know, there's lots of analogies to, you know, what we do. There's a three-legged stool. There's, you know, three-legged stool is food quality, service, and value. No matter what the price of anything is, if it's executed flawlessly, it's got great value. Um, But... Food quality is, you know, really the reason people go to eat. And what we did at the club, and I always say we because I don't do it myself, but all this trickles down is, you know, the 
the value of food, you know, the the appreciation or the the um, respect for products. And uh, if you have a you know a, a enormous food inventory, you're going to have a high food cost, and you're going to have food that's really not very fresh. So um, the first thing I addressed was the uh, you know the seasonality and the the quality of the food and uh that's pretty much an easy fix because you know i wrote the menus i've written the menus uh let's see i've been there a year and a half so this is the sixth uh, menu change for the fine dining restaurant so it changes every quarter um and i you know i knocked the inventory down you know i guess uh 75 percent so everything's super fresh. We utilize our farm a lot, and uh, I've been doing sustainable and local, you know, cuisine for, you know, since the uh, early 90s. So I try to buy everything within, you know, 50 to 100 miles, and I feature those items on the menu. Um, you know, we've got these little chickens from a farm out in Leesburg. It's called Johannan. We'll get, we'll get beef from Rosetta or ducks from Jerkowitz or, you know, we keep it local and very fresh and we just buy what we need. And uh, one of the best analogies I ever came up with, because I don't think I, I learned this from anybody else, but was, I think it was because my dad was in the hairstyling business, was when you get that new bottle of shampoo, you use six times as much as you really need. But when you get down to the bottom of the bottle of shampoo, you use a dime's worth, and that's just what you needed to get the job done. And a lot of times, um, cost of goods can be a whole lot better if you have, you know, tight specs and you do everything consistent and you have this foundation that you're building a menu on. And if you do all the right things right, then you can take that money that you're, you know, dropped into the bottom line, you can reinvest it into, you know, giving back. And giving back is um, you know, doing all these little extra things that you can do for almost free. It's it's like you've suddenly gotten all this extra money that you can spend on your clientele, your members, your guests, however way you want to look at it. But you can do all these things, you know, from lost leaders to, you know, just, you know, add tapenade and uh, and uh, hummus to your bread basket in the summertime. It's terrific, you know, and people love it. Um, you know, things like that. You can do a lot of little things that um, add value and add a little wow to what you do if you're doing the right things right from, you know, ordering to receiving to following the food through production. And you, you know, I run a kitchen that's pretty old school so we don't we don't waste anything we use every bit of everything uh you know from fish bones to you know duck fat uh you know we 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 use everything it's uh um that's old school but um you know that's about 10 percent in food costs that you're saving and you can go ahead and spend that somewhere else to really wow your guests Chef, I you are a, a pretty incredible individual who's got some awesome insights, especially into food cost and in doing little something extras because I think that is important. And I think uh, 
it is something that a lot of people are almost coming to expect. Um, you know, they're expecting amuse bouches or palate cleansers or whatever thing uh, in between courses to to kind of heighten that dining experience or, or kind of raise that perception of value. And I think you make a good point that <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily have to be extra, but that is something that comes from being very wise or a, or a good steward over the resources that you're given. So in all your experience and all of your travels and uh, places that you've worked and things, you've learned quite a few things. So what do you tell the up and coming culinary generation or what do you tell the people that are maybe looking for a chance to improve themselves or their careers? What advice do you give them? Well, I don't think it's changed much. I I would say you want to work with uh, the best you can. You want to commit to, you know, putting both hands in the fire, meaning, you know, whatever you're asked, you know, as long as it's, you know, within means to do, um, you you definitely want to come to work every day with an attitude that you want to learn because you can learn a heck of a lot more if you have that kind of attitude. Um you know, pick the right school if you're going to go to school. I've uh, headed many externship programs, and I've uh, got to work with a lot of different culinary students over these years. And uh, I can name the schools that I, you know, I have on my list for externs. Um, they're the ones that are, you know, they're spending their time wisely. Um, but I think it goes back to, uh, you know, hands-on application of you know you know techniques and learning the craft and uh hopefully you work with a um chef or managers that uh take the time to share stories and share things that are important in the future because developing the next generation um we take the time to you know share stories or share information or share knowledge that know will help them because we want to see our profession just get better and better talk a little bit about your experience with with the up-and-coming generation and uh, maybe some of your experience in in the market that you're in in the DC metro area you know what are some of your challenges what are some of your opportunities what's the what's it like hiring and, and recruiting and training and retaining people we have, uh, you know, for a long time there was eight to nine thousand restaurants, and uh, maybe about six or seven years ago, I started worrying a little bit, and I found out it went to twelve thousand, and now it's twelve thousand five hundred. There's just a oversaturation of of operations that are food and beverage, and luckily I have a, you know, I have this classroom environment that I, you know, I I commit to or I insist on. I, I That's all I, I've done in over the last probably 15 years. You know, we always have the time to teach. We always have the time to mentor. This is what we do. The, and that's really the only way that I attract staff because they know when they come in here, 
you know, if I hire a sous chef, they can be a chef in two years or if they do well. Um, if I hire, a, you know, a line cook that has lots of experience and they want to be a sous chef, their commitment is 18 months. You know, as long as they want to learn and develop themselves, we're there to develop them. And um, it's an interesting story. When I got to Bellhaven Country Club, there were no chefs, no sous chefs, and they had 14 open positions. And some people try to give me grief about social media, but I got to tell you, without social media, I would be in trouble because when I got the Bellhaven Country Club, I didn't know we had 18 open positions, and it was in June, one of the busiest months of the year. So all I did was post on my Chef Dwayne Keller Facebook page, LinkedIn. Um, I think I used um, Instagram. I don't use Instagram much, but I just posted I'm hiring. And I don't usually have a lot of openings because my staff follows me around. They love working with me. And so when I went over to open Gaylord National, we hired 650. I brought a lot of people with me. When I go here, I take staff with me. They all like to follow me. So I walked into the club, and we had 18 open positions. And I posted that, and no exaggeration, I had people getting on buses from Vegas, driving from Wyoming, coming up from Florida, North Carolina, New York, Philadelphia, you name it. They all came in droves. And I ran the basically uh, stage, you know, work for the position. The, it was hectic. It was crazy. But I've never seen any such great attitudes and great, you know, working to get a position Everybody working hard and, you know, being so respectful and just wanting to work there at the club. I, I retained 80% of the people that I hired. And some of them came in and worked for a year and they moved on because they learned what they wanted to learn. And that's fine. But without social media, I don't know. This link or uh, Craigslist and uh, Indeed's pretty good. But there, it's tough to hire people in the D.C. market. It really is. So I have a reputation to teach. I run a classroom environment, and I have a strong social media following. So um, that helps. But uh, I can tell you the rest of the chefs in town will tell you the same thing. It's difficult. And you get uh, kids that come from culinary school that, they don't want to do anything. They think they know everything. And sorry, guys, but I've been in kitchens 42 years, and I go to work every day hoping I learn something. And actually, every day I do learn something. Chef, I can confidently say that the, you've given us a lot to think about today and a lot of great insights and really good techniques that we can actually take into our into our operations and into our lives. So... Thank you for that. Um, if people are out there and they do want to know more about you uh, or, or what it is that you're up to, what's the best way to get a hold of you or, or touch base with you? That's probably the best place to find me is just uh, go to LinkedIn and look up Dwayne Keller. Okay, and last part, give us a send-off. What one sentence 
is going to carry us through. I'm only halfway there. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or anyone who's interested in making food and money. And when you get a second, give us a review. It really helps us get the word out as well as letting us know how we're doing. Want to connect with us? Check us out at Make Food Make Money on Instagram or Facebook. Or email us, info at businesschef.org.